You're listening to the Man Overseas Podcast, a show that explores methods and ideas to help you live a bigger life. You will hear interesting stories of how people live, how they save and invest their money, and why having time wealth is better than being a billionaire. If you are entertained, educated, or elevated, be sure to hit the subscribe button. We're just getting started. Now here is your host, Brad D'Antonio. Hi, friends. I'm glad you're with me. My guest today is Nick Luft. Nick is the co-founder and CEO of Idol, which is a startup app company. He's also a musician, a record producer, an artist, a rabid Avid Brothers fan, and occasionally an amateur stand-up comedian. I think I would like to do that too sometime. <laughs> I can think of a few reasons why. One, I enjoy public speaking. Two, they say comedy is a whole different ball game in terms of the challenge of trying to make a captive audience laugh, an audience who is expecting to laugh. Three, I think I would enjoy seeing progress in the areas of delivery and timing and reading an audience. Besides every talk I've ever given, I try to make the audience laugh at the start, which is what advice, it's the advice of pretty much any public speaking guru is to try to loosen the tension in the room and get the audience comfortable with the speaker. So the operative word being try, I don't always land, but I remember the first time I ever did it, I told a joke into the microphone and there's a delay between when you're finished telling your joke and the time it takes for sound to travel to the audience. And I was totally not expecting it. So that one second feels like 20 seconds. And I thought that I had bombed but then the satisfying feeling of when the room does laugh is it feels glorious. So I think I would enjoy being a comedian. I wouldn't start in the way that Joel Osteen does, by the way. So if you've ever watched him on Sunday morning, he is a great orator. But every service, he starts the same way. He says, I like to start with something funny. And I think, dude, you're kind of taken away from your joke because you're basically begging the audience to laugh and letting them know you're going to try to make them laugh. So I think part of the charm of a comedian is that they're putting themselves out, out there, risking showing their willingness to bomb. And I think there's something to that that will encourage a laugh. So otherwise, I think it could be forced. But who am I to tell Joe Osteen how to do his business? I mean, that guy fills the Compact Center every Sunday. The Compact Center is where the Rockets used to play back where Akeem Olajuwon used to shake him up on the baseline. The dream shake, they called it. I was a Rockets fan, big time back in the day. Not so much anymore because I'm not a Harden fan. I still root for them because I'm a Houstonian, but I, I wish our star player were a little bit uh, different person. <laughs> I also take rejection well, and I think that bodes well for comedians. So if you do bomb, if you can smile afterward, I think that is a key to the good life, right? If you can bomb in any aspect of life and keep smiling. So if I were a comedian, I think I would either get a laugh or I would learn something. So there's something to be said for that. Another thing, <laughs> I don't think you need to be that funny to be a comedian. If you listen to Joe Rogan's podcast, which I have listened to several, you could listen to nine hours of him talking to a buddy and realize that he doesn't say one thing that's funny. And he's a professional comedian. So I think most of it is just hard work and putting in the time and developing your craft, which is something I would enjoy. So just wanted to give my <laughs> hopeful aspirations of being a comedian someday out there. If anybody's willing to 
give me a chance. <laughs> I'm, I'm willing to put in the work. <laughs> Moving on. Nick and I talk about his favorite commencement speech given by David Foster Wallace. I have never heard it before, or at least not until Nick sent it to me, but I am quickly becoming a huge fan. I've, I've listened to it now three times. I actually play a 20-second clip of that speech on the podcast. We also discuss politics and God and religion all the things basically that you're not supposed to talk about when you're on a first date with a woman, <laughs> which by the way, you wouldn't believe how many women make the mistake of talking about not only that stuff, but talking about their ex. That is probably the cardinal sin. You don't want to talk about your ex on a first date. I had a woman on a first date one time tell me that she was on vacation with her ex-boyfriend and they were going through the TSA line at the airport, and her boyfriend was called out of line because they thought he had a gun. And so she's built up intrigue, and I'm like, why did they think that? And she laughed and said, oh, because he's just got this huge hog. <laughs> I'm like, why would you tell me that? <laughs> Some people don't know how to act. But this is an episode you won't want to miss, because if you've ever wanted to leave your day job and start doing your own thing, you're going to want to hear what Nick has to say. His company, Idle, recently ranked number one on Android for its category, which it's like Airbnb. But you know what? I'm going to let him tell you what it is. Full disclosure, I was an early investor. I am an investor. Like most business owners I know, Nick is very generous. If you follow me on Instagram, you may have noticed I posted a video in my IG stories from what looked like a fancy hotel room overlooking the Mississippi River. Well, that was courtesy of Nick. And I couldn't be more grateful. This week, Nick and I are joining forces to do another big giveaway. First prize is going to be a StubHub gift card in the amount of $150. So as soon as we get out of this coronavirus mess, you'll be able to attend the concert or ball game of your choice. Second prize will be an Amazon gift card in the amount of $100. Three things you need to do to win. Subscribe to the podcast. Follow us on Instagram, both of us, that's at GetIdle, G-E-T-I-D-L-E, and at man underscore overseas. And the third thing you need to do is tag a friend in the comment section of today's Instagram photo. It will be a New Orleans-related photo. If you tag two friends, your name will go in the hat twice. So you will vastly increase the chances of you winning by tagging two friends in the comment section of today's IG photo. Our drawing will be Friday at 1 o'clock in my IG stories, Friday, 1 p.m. on Instagram. Three things you need to do to win, just to repeat. Subscribe to the Man Overseas podcast. You must be a subscriber to win. Follow us on Instagram, at GetIdle and at Man underscore Overseas. And then three, tag a friend in the comment section of today's Instagram photo. Without saying, without further ado, let me bring Mr. Nick Luft on the podcast. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. Happy to see you after, you know, th what, probably 30 years, right? At least 25, yeah. At least 25. And then, you know, all of a sudden, you're in a, we're in a Harris hotel room, which is weird, kind of, but, you know, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I had to walk through the casino to get here. And oh, how tempting it is just to put down a 50 spot to see if I can double it real quick. But I kept my discipline and showed up with my little briefcase with my equipment in it. And here we are. Yeah. What, what do you play when you... Uh... I like to play poker because my money will last a lot longer doing that. Yeah, totally. Is that what you play? No, I don't. I usually play like video poker. 
but money doesn't really last all that long. And it's kind of isolating too, so it's not a whole lot of fun to play. You know, like all my friends like to play craps and stuff like that. These days, I just kind of casually walk through there too. This happened in first grade. Okay. It was Christmas time and we were required to exchange gifts. So we drew names. And I don't think you got my name, which is why you probably wouldn't remember this story. But I had to get a gift for you. And so my mom and I went shopping. And at that age, I just thought that you would like what I liked. And so I picked out something that I wanted. And it was a pack of football cards. It was football cards. And they were stacked in a bag that was transparent so you could see which cards were in there. And what seemed like a year, they were sitting under my tree, my Christmas tree at home. And I wanted to open that pack so bad. And I tried to convince my mom that you didn't like football, even though you probably did. Not, not as much as I would have. I, th- I think your assumption was pretty, pretty right on the money. I would, first grade, that was He-Man. Okay. You know, Voltron, all that stuff. Yeah, I was, I was Voltron too. Yeah. So anyway, so the day that I had to give it to you, which I assume was the last day before the Christmas break, I came up with all these ideas in my head of how I could keep it. Like, I'm going to tell him that I forgot it at home. And I'll just get him something else and give it to him when we get back from Christmas break. So I had all these things working in my head. And it was so emotionally painful for me to part with those cards that had been under my tree for so long, especially since I didn't know if you would like it, but I knew that I would love it. And so I don't remember your reaction when I gave it to you, but it was nothing like the reaction that I would have had if somebody had given me a pack of football cards. I learned such a valuable lesson from that. And I swear I have thought about it at least 30 times throughout my life that it's important to consider what other people like and don't get somebody something that you would like so much that it's going to be emotionally jarring for you to give it away. So I swear I still think about that to this day. If I were going shopping at the Canal Street Mall right here today and I was getting something for my brother for Christmas, I would remember when I gave Nick Luff that pack of football cards and not get him something that I would want too much. (laughs) Well, first of all, uh, sorry that you had to go through that. Second of all, I do remember that. And I do remember being disappointed. (laughs) Not to, you know, I think there's always like a fair balance. And, and, you know, you want to share things that you love with people when you give gifts. But you have to also understand that they may not give a shit, you know, (laughs) the whole card baseball card football card whatever in in elementary school it was out of control right like with all of the collecting i remember i I recently on social media uh talked about how i went to my daughter's halloween bazaar and i started you know writing like memories of the halloween bazaar at saint joseph and they had invisible ink and baseball cards and all those things got taken away because mr toops our vice principal at the time he got squirted with invisible ink. So he decided to ban it for life for all of the kids at that school, which in retrospect, you know, I, I'm sure Mr. Toops is a great guy, but how grumpy do you have to be to ban it for life for all of the kids? He was a grumpy old man. The Halloween Bazaar day was my favorite day of the oh, year. Oh, me too. The hands down, right. man. That he would ban that. What? You got to be a real... And you used to be able to put people in jail, which was just like a dog cage. They did, they did away with that. Um, 
I remember there was a big baseball card scandal at our school. I think someone had stolen some baseball cards at some point, and then no more baseball cards. So we were raised Catholic. Yeah. And I thought in later years that the lesson that I learned giving you those cards was a lesson from God not to be selfish. I know that you went to LSU, and yeah. I spent most of the last year out of the country. So um, did they have a good football program this past year? You know, I had heard they had done pretty good. I had heard someone say um, best college football team of all time, maybe. <laughs> I'm not I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure we're doing okay, though. I, I think that's right. Which, did you get to go to one of the playoff games? I did, yeah. I went to the one in Atlanta uh, with my buddy Jason, and, and we had a great time. Jason Toops. Jason Toops. So one of the things I miss when I'm out of the country during football season is waking up and watching ESPN game day on Saturday mornings. And there's a segment that Reese Davis does. Um, it's it's heart-wrenching stories that he does. And a few years ago, he did one about a friend of yours named Kyler Duncan. Yeah. And he's about our age. He went to UT in Austin. Mm-hmm. I think they did the segment because he was one of the one, one of the guys responsible for taking care of Bevo, the mascot. Right. Out of nowhere, he had depleted liver function and so uh, was diagnosed with neoendocrine carcinoma. And the segment was great. They showed video tributes from Matthew McConaughey and Mac Brown and even got letters from Eddie Vedder and Barack Obama. Uh, you had sent me a link to that story yeah. and told me how much it impacted your life. Why yeah. is that? Oh, my gosh. Where do I begin? So Kyler and I, um, we met through my wife's work. So my wife uh, works for, does finance at, I'll just say a Fortune 500 company. Kyler worked there too. So we, we were kind of casual acquaintances and he was a CPA by trade. But he was nothing, he doesn't really fit the mold of a CPA. Uh, immediately, we bonded over music. He was very much a hippie. He was kind of a philosopher all the time. You know, we always talked about these big, broader ideas about life and what's meaningful. So, for the next 10 years, we hung out pretty much every weekend. Our families hung out. And he had, a, he had two daughters. And he was the guy, I mean, he, you know... I think what's beneficial sometimes about having kids late and you may experience this later on is that you kind of get to see who's doing a good job and who's doing a bad job of raising their kids and what to do and what not to do. He's the guy that taught me how to be a good dad, but he was also looking for a change. So he was like, man, I can't handle the corporate Atlanta traffic, this and that. I would love to move to Portland. And I'm like, Portland? What for? And he's like, I don't know, man. I I just want to be close to the mountains and you're close to skiing. And it just seems like a cool vibe. I'm like, okay, but by cool vibe, do you mean like I got to see a guy on a unicycle with a handlebar mustache every day? Is that what you want? (laughs) And, you know, he would. He would kind of laugh, but he was very much, you know, he was that guy. He was, he was, he always called himself a nomad. So he moved to Portland and uh, I was really missing him. He had been there a couple of months and he gives me a call. He's like, Hey man, just want to let you know, I I just got back from the doctor and uh, they're telling me that I have cancer, more to come. So I'm like, Oh, 
You never want to hear something like that. But the next phone call, we think we have about two weeks. Two weeks of what? Life. Jesus. It, it was extremely rare. It was extremely aggressive. It had spread all over. So at that point, so we go out to Texas and one of the weirdest experiences ever, uh, his family threw him a going away party, which was weird and awful. Give up. He was barely living at that point. And Kyler's favorite bands were Pearl Jam, Flaming Lips. Um, I reached out to them. Some of the people in Texas reached out to other people. And these celebrities started sending him videos, which w- was kind of amazing. I mean, you don't think that you can email Pearl Jam and that they'll they'll email you back and do something kind of amazing immediately. I mean, I don't suggest it. Please don't abuse that. They all kind of came through. And the message started circulating around the country. Kyler started to feel better. And he was like, you know what? I'm going to see if I can make it to the end of the driveway. I just want to walk to the end of the driveway. And then he said, well, made it there. want to make it to the pool. So I guess the long story of it was that he actually had 11 months of of really good quality life before uh, every kind of everything kind of came back, and then he went really quickly. It kind of just shows you like the power of the human spirit, the po- power of positivity, especially in his case. If you watch the video, and I would recommend it, uh, he's the guy that why not be positive? I feel like most people in his situation probably would have given up. I know I would have actually, if I'm being honest with myself. I'll include a link to the ESPN segment in the show notes. What I'm curious about is how does losing your best friend change you? How does it change me? Uh, well, I mean, certainly there, there are also always times where, you know, you, I mean, you have to just understand, or I'm sure most people do understand, but on a very conscious level that, each person is completely unique and there's no replacing that person. And that's a hard pill to swallow, man. It really is. After losing someone that was a peer and that close to me, you know, it kind of made me come to terms with, with what I could handle in terms of loss. And then I had a very close friend lose a daughter who was the same age as my daughter. And that is unthinkable. How old at the time? She's almost three. So my daughter and their daughter played together and they were from England. She basically uh, took a nap and just never woke up. And we saw them about 10 hours after it happened. And I thought there was no coming back. I absolutely, and I, and I empathized, I mean, as much as I could, but I know that if I was in that situation, there's no coming back. I mean, they're meaning, how do you go on with life? How do you go on? How do you find purpose? I know for a fact that they live with that pain. But the point is, is that they live with that pain. I guess I, I don't really understand, to be honest with you. I, I guess your mind has to make a decision to keep living or not. If you've had a loved one pass away or you know someone that that's had that's been through something like that i i think that the worst thing you can do is not to mention it a lot of people think that maybe i shouldn't mention death or dying because it might 
bring up some uncomfortable emotions or remind them. I, I promise you they're always reminded, but not acknowledging that person's existence furthers that pain. I know Kyler in his situation, he was such a ham that he would be pissed off to all hell if we didn't mention him, if we pretended like he didn't exist. The three-year-old, did you? Her name was Eva. I actually gave the eulogy at Eva's funeral, which was really... I have I have very, very conflicted feelings about what I, what I would even say about it. Because I gave the eulogy, and then because Eva's parents were They were kind of a mess. Of course they are a mess. Of course they are. They they could barely speak, and I would be in the same situation. So, you know, I kind of took it upon myself to compose myself, compose my thoughts. And I actually found uh, that writing her eulogy, it really helped me process the experience and death and coming to terms with if I were in that situation as well. The benefits of writing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I don't think it's a secret that people have always benefited from journaling or writing in diaries. This was just one of those things where everything's a mess. It feels like a shipwreck where you're grabbing for pieces and there's these waves coming over you and you can't really can't really see the bigger picture of what's going on around you. But when you have it on paper, it's great. It also showed me that uh, even in that nightmares situation, the power of humor. I made a joke in the eulogy. It was very serious. It was very serious. This is it. And I basically told a story about how we all took our daughters to go see this kid's show's Peppa Pig Live. And before that, uh, my wife and I and Johnny and Tanya and the two girls, the three-year-olds, we decided to take them to dinner first. And my joke was, well, I'm not going to tell you where we decided to take our daughters to dinner but they serve chicken wings and it rhymes with shooters. And that was, you know, that was a joke. And it kind of like relieved the, t- the tension in the worst situation possible. So I think humor is also very helpful in, in those kinds of situations. It helps, you know, uh, bring that natural relief. You and I share an affinity for commencement speeches. And what a world that we live in nowadays where you can click on just about any speech that's ever been given. And I find myself some nights staying up till 2 a.m. just watching commencement speeches. But of course, when you're 22 years old, you don't appreciate it at all. Right. Uh, but you sent me a link to a speech that I had never heard. There's a quote that I've heard from it, and I'll share that a little later. But it's a speech called This is Water. And it was given by David Foster Wallace. That's correct. Why did it resonate with you so much that you thought to send it to me? I'm a fan of David Foster Wallace on on a on a bigger scale. And if you haven't read any of his work, um, he wrote Infinite Jest and a few other short uh, compilations of short stories. He's actually no longer with us, unfortunately. The way he puts it in that speech, you know, he explained to you what's right in front of you and, and the meaning that's right in front of you all the time. This is I'm not sure how I stumbled upon it. But I do remember thinking right after those those deaths that I had just talked about. But I was walking around and I was thinking, man, do people really know what's going on like with me right now? Like, I don't know why I had that thought. 
but it made me think, well, I don't, I think everyone's going through something on a very profound level. Yeah, it's a speech I think that's needed, especially now due to our self-centered times. Think about how much time people spend looking at pictures of themselves. Sure. In addition to getting ready for that picture, our life is nothing if not a limited amount of time. And whenever I see girls especially, but guys do it too, taking pictures of themselves and finding the perfect filter, I just think that can't help but make you more self-focused. And so this speech was written in 2006, I believe. That was pre-selfie, I believe. Sure. Yeah. So it's been nothing but a downward spiral since then. The quote that I was referencing earlier, he says, everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe. And he says that you've had no experience that you're not the absolute center of. He encourages in the speech, he encourages people to somehow break free from this self-centered way of walking through the world. And he says that it's a hardwired default setting that we've, we've got to overcome, but you can choose to overcome the idea that you are the center of the universe, but it's going to take a little effort because we are deeply, and yeah. as he says, literally self-centered. He talks about how you can spend time in the end of the day traffic being angry and disgusted at all the huge, stupid, lane-blocking SUVs and Hummers and burning their wasteful, selfish 40-gallon tanks of gas. And you can dwell on the fact that that's just pissing you off and they're in your way. But if you start to choose to think about really what other people are going through, it helps them, it helps you. I mean, everyone that's pissed off that you come across in traffic or, you know, in a regular setting, they're going through some stuff too. I think empathy goes a long way. I went on a quest when I finished school to try to learn things that I didn't learn in school. And I have a young coaching client now that approached me and said, I feel like I've graduated, but I didn't learn anything. And I said, I, I think you're probably right. Yeah. One of the books that I read was Emotional Intelligence. We weren't taught to not live in the past or not have anxiety about the future. We weren't taught how to think. Some people need to work on this stuff more than others. I'm certainly one that I, I need to work on more than others. I certainly get caught up in, you know, the everyday frustrations that, mo that most people do. I think you're right, but also... I don't really remember what I learned in college, but I certainly learned the the value of other ideas. Growing up in a small town, everyone was Catholic. Everyone was white. Everyone, I mean, I say everyone, but most people were white. Most people kind of came from the same socioeconomic background. When you go to college, you start to realize there's a world outside of this little bubble. It certainly was that for me. So I feel like that is one of those things that you can't really it's not tangible but it's certainly something from especially if you go away to college yeah it's what college is supposed to be it doesn't always work out like that my wife went to the university of houston and it is probably the most diverse in the country really and is it, is it one of the biggest as well 
I'm not sure how many University of Houston has. If I had to guess, it's twenty or thirty thousand. Okay, but well, that's big. A, a huge melting pot. So you do get exposed to different ideas. You're right. You grew up, and I grew up until eighth grade in a very homogenous area of the country. Yeah. If I had to guess, ninety-eight percent Catholic. Our Catholic school was ninety-eight percent white. Right. Um, so you're not exposed to a lot of different viewpoints. And yeah, what, not exactly all kinds of different people at all. Yeah, and what David Foster Wallace is saying in this speech is that what a liberal arts education should do is teach you how to think, which he describes as learning how to exercise control over how and what you think, choosing what to pay attention to, choosing how you construct meaning from experience. These are all things that... I wish that I was taught in school present state awareness where they're not living in the future and in the past or have a constant internal monologue running at all times. They can be present state aware like your favorite pet. You know, dogs aren't worried about the future or the past. Well, yeah, and and I think you're right. And and when you mentioned meditation, I'm a I'm a fan. But I think I think that sometimes, you know, what's what's new is old. I, I think that meditation in, in a lot of different ways, I think, and I don't mean to jump to conclusions or project, but I, I think that's the same benefit that people get from prayer to a God or whatever else you, you believe in. Um, I think that's the benefit. I think that meditation is that. I think it's awareness. I think it's sort of losing your idea of self and thinking about what's bigger than you yeah how important would it be for a young person in school to learn that you can choose what to pay attention to or to believe or to believe yeah so a lot of times we're indoctrinated early in life yeah and we at some point you get the option of whether or not you want to continue to be catholic sure as an example you were raised catholic correct Oh, yes. Were you talking about confirmation? Because that that was not really the option, I don't think. Confirmation. Or, uh, that's right. You went away to school. So, like, yeah, you get to choose. You have to choose as an adult to be ca- Catholic in 11th grade. Oh. But you're in school and your parents make you and everyone else is doing it. So it's an interesting time to do it. They don't really want to do it when you're 25. <laughs> I think that might be too late. And I don't mean to make fun. I don't. I don't. I, I, I've had some really positive experiences growing up Catholic. Uh, my mom worked at the school uh, where we went, and, and we would often hang out with a lot of the brothers and nuns and priests, and they were all very lovely people. Anytime I kind of make fun of, fun of you know, the crushing guilt of the Catholic Church and all of that, I'm only half serious, but also half serious. I have— liberal-leaning friends, politically liberal-leaning friends, who have a strong animosity towards those who believe in God. And I guess they're stereotyping, but they tend to think that all of them wear their religion on their sleeve, and it's a huge turnoff for them. But we come from an area where people don't wear it on their sleeve. Not at all. It's it's almost it's taboo to talk about religion. When When... So my wife grew up Methodist, and when she first came to New Catholic Church with my family, she couldn't believe that really people weren't singing loudly because 
where, you know, she, she just thought that was super weird. I think people do kind of keep it to themselves quite a bit. Um, yeah, it, you're right. I've, I've never really thought about it that way. Scott Adams wrote a book called Loser Think. He's also written How to Fail at Almost Everything and Still Win Big. Are you familiar with Scott Adams? A little bit, yeah. So probably his favorite book of mine is a thought experiment he called God's Debris. And in the, in the book, he talks about how people aren't really true believers. And his reason for saying that is because if you really thought that based on your activity in this life would determine how you were going to spend the rest of eternity, you would devote all of your time, or at least 23 hours of the day, to serving other people and doing what Jesus would do or Allah would do. And so he says that religions are able to coexist on this earth because people walk around knowing that the other person is full of shit, that they're not a true believer. Otherwise, they would they would spend a lot more time worshiping and giving praise and doing things that would help them to get to a place where they're going to spend the rest of eternity in heaven based on these few 85 years or whatever it is that you get. Well, I think, I, I think that he, that's a great point. I think that, you know, everyone else thinks that everyone else is wrong and I, you know, I, I'm not sure anyone's right, but, um, I think that, you know, I, I remember growing up thinking Islamic folks believe more than we do. I remember thinking that, you know, cause they're willing to do a whole lot more and, and clearly, they do a whole lot more. And I mean, it, it's, it just felt like, wow. So what do they know that we don't know? But also to your point of you'd spend all your time doing acts of kindness for others. I don't know if that's necessarily true because I've come across a lot of religious people and this wasn't how we were brought up, but they believe in their job is to spread the word, but not acts. Acts mean nothing. Now in the, in the Jewish faith, acts are pretty much everything mitzvahs, but in a lot of evangelical Christian, it's all about accepting Jesus and not about acts at all. That's what actually scares me. The fact that you can believe one thing and just do another or, or just be fine with that just because you know you're good and you're going to heaven, whatever. I feel like if you don't feel like you have an effect on other people, then you're, you're clearly misguided. Hopefully, most people don't think like that. David Foster Wallace in the speech talks tells the story of an atheist and a religious person sitting at a bar in a remote part of Alaska. The atheist had just been caught in a snowstorm the week before, and he thought he was going to die. So for the first time, he prayed, and he said, Oh, God, if there is a God, please help me or I will die. And the other guy says, Ah, so you're here. You're a, you're a believer now. And he says, Oh, no, man. All that was was a couple of Eskimos happened to be walking by and showed me the way to a camp. So his point is you can have the exact same experience as someone else with differing views, and you just have two different ways of constructing meaning from experience. And David Foster Wallace is trying to get the point across that meaning is personal. It is, it's through intentional choice. And I believe this too. It's a total waste of time to ask the question, what is the meaning of life? 
if there was a universal answer to the question, what is the meaning of life? Life would pretty much be rendered moot at that point. It'd be pointless because we would all just do that thing which makes life meaningful. So it's, it's very personal. And he goes on to say that there's arrogance on both sides of the argument, on both the atheist side and the religious side. And I couldn't agree more. I tend to think of myself as agnostic. On a good day, I, I tend to think of myself as a seeker. Uh, there's this great book. It's called There Are Men Too Gentle to Live Amongst the Wolves. It's by an, a former Catholic priest. His name is Jim Cavanaugh. If you can find it, it's kind of hard to find. I totally recommend it. He kind of goes on to say, you know, what's a seeker? It's the person that they're really not sure, and they don't think you're sure. But but on the other hand, as an agnostic, I don't think I'm any smarter than anyone with religion. In fact, I really don't like it when I see the the atheist billboards. They're really all super condescending. And I'm like, what the fuck is your goal in all of this? To take something away from someone? Because that's, I don't know, like if I were to form a political party, I'd, it would be called just don't be such a dick. You don't want to be, you know, you don't want someone that's super in- evangelical to impose their beliefs on you. Uh, why would you do exactly the same thing that they're doing? I guess organized atheists, it became what it didn't want to be. God's debris, he talks about how religion has been passed down through the years. He says that he uses the analogy of if you have a bird with four other birds sitting on a ledge at a cathedral and they're looking through the stained glass window and each of them has a, is looking through a different color. So one of them red, one of them yellow, another one green, blue, etc. And they're looking into what represents religion or God. If that bird gets a warm feeling from sitting on that perch, whatever lens it is that they looked through, whichever color they found God through, is what they would pass down. So each color would represent a different religion. Sure. And it makes sense that if you've lived a fulfilled life looking through the yellow stained glass, which might represent Catholicism, that you would want to instill those values in your kids. It's an interesting way to think about it that I had not considered. Um, I was raised Catholic. And then when my parents divorced and they weren't able to get, they didn't want to go through the process of getting their divorce annulled because it costs money. And they just thought that was kind of a BS thing. Yeah. I then went and they to, were right. Yeah. <laughs> I, went, I then went to a public school in Houston and I had the option of whether I wanted to go to church. Right. And I didn't. Right. But I've always been a but I've always been a prayerful person. And what you said earlier is so true, man. Meditation and prayer are so similar. The act of sitting and being grateful, having a regular gratitude practice, whether you're thanking God or the universe or the infinite vastness that called God, whatever it is that you want to be thankful for, that will probably improve your life. So yeah. I have mixed views on religion just as you do. Everybody has doubts about their faith. They're tested at times. What I have most come to believe, or at least doubted, is that 
there is a superhuman being out there that's concerned about the inner workings of our daily lives. I tend to think, and this is largely based on my own experience, that God is internal. And if you were to instill the values that I just mentioned in your kid of being grateful and to pray for other people, which would just be wishing good vibes on someone else or wishing good health on someone else, that could improve your life so much that that's something that you you would want to pass down. You can call it whatever you want, but there's something to be said for stillness and solitude and being grateful and praying for other people. Call that whatever you want to call it. There's a new movie. Uh, it's called Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. It's about M- Mr. Rogers. Turns out Mr. Rogers was just a really unique, uh, good human being. You think you're going to go into, like I, I watched this documentary and you're thinking there's going to be some something scandalous to kind of disappoint you, but there's not. He was just kind of awesome. But in the movie, uh, there's a part where the director cuts out all the music, all the background noise. And Mr. Roger and this journalist, they are talking and he says, let's take two minutes and let's sit here still and think about the people that brought us into being the people that loved us into being and into life. And, you know, Tom Hanks stares at the camera for two minutes, very intense moment, but same thing that you're talking about, really take a step back and, and, and be thankful the good and the bad too, by the way, you're shaped by not just the good. What do you mean by that? That the, the tests and trials in your life, I mean, they shape you too and they make you stronger. I think that, you know, anyone that just leads a life of only good things, I, th- I think that in a lot of ways they're missing out. Yeah, you have to go through the trials and tribulations to appreciate the good a lot of times. That's right. I always quote the Ava brothers, the best winners are losers <laughs> sometimes. Interesting. Yeah. I like that. Best lovers never been loved. I want to play a part of the speech that we keep going back to David Foster Wallace. He says, here's what your liberal arts education is supposed to be about. How to keep from going through your comfortable, prosperous, respectable adult life dead, unconscious, a slave to your head and to your natural default setting of being uniquely, completely, imperially alone, day in and day out. That may sound like hyperbole or abstract nonsense. Let's get concrete. The plain fact is that you graduating seniors do not yet have any clue what day in, day out really means. (laughs) There happen to be whole large parts of adult American life that nobody talks about in commencement speeches. One such part involves boredom, routine, and petty frustration. Was that true? Oh, sure. Commencement speeches, they rarely talk about the boredom, the tedium of getting up and doing the same thing like Groundhog Day. He's trying to share a message of reality with college students rather than being super inspiring. I think that David Foster Wallace is, is he was incredibly brilliant. He was incredibly thoughtful. I think that anyone uh, listening to his advice should take it, but also take it with a grain of salt. Because he's also the guy who didn't care a lot about himself. And that's pretty evident through the things that he talks about. Um, 
and he ultimately, you know, took his own life, which is sad. So I think that, you know, there's always a balance. If you spend all your time worried about what everyone else is going to think or do or what's going on with them, you you may not be taking care of yourself. That's just me playing devil's advocate. Like, you know, I sent you this speech because I'm a huge fan of it and I think it's very important. But I think I think that you know, never meet your heroes because they're just people, man. And I don't think, I always love that Steve Jobs quote where he's talking about, you know, all all this stuff that's around you, it's built by people really not smarter than you. It's just people that decided they want something different. And I think, I think a lot of times you need to put, think about people as just people and, and Mr. Rogers included. In a way, his community, in a way, his committing suicide adds a level of authenticity to his speech. Do you think so? Yeah, because I think he was talking about his own struggle. But let me tell you why. He talks about how we gradually slip into the default setting, which yeah. is the rat race and craving and the worship of self. And when somebody speaks in that way mm-hmm. and they say we, he's including himself in that i can tell you that i don't think this way so (laughs) i don't know if i'm a a weird exception but i can find a lot of things that i disagree with in his speech well well you also have the benefit of not having the day-to-day like i would say most people have the day-to-day you know that's the routine right maybe I could be wrong. You might have a very normal day-to-day that has the same frustrations as everyone else. Well, it's a good point. I would say that I did at one time. Sure. Um, but I never did have a wife and kids to worry about. Right. But I, I understand what he's saying. I mean, I do have close friends and relatives who do live that life. And I spend a lot of time with them. I have coworkers who are or had coworkers who were constantly complaining about that life. So it's not foreign to me. I, you know, I study and observe people and sure. I understand the rat race. I was definitely part of the rat race. Um, the worship of power. I mean, I used to, I used to climb artificial hierarchies just like most people. Mm-hmm. The point that he's making and the one you just touched on is that everyone sort of worships something. I recently read, and this has been so interesting. If you're an observer of people, that you can always find out what someone worships, really, if you go into their house and find their altar. And I have found that to be super true, man. For, for example, if you walk into my house, first thing you'll see is this cabinet, and it has a record player on top of it, and this old like vintage tube amp. And then from... All across the wall to the ceiling are a bunch of like albums that I love framed. So music is my favorite thing on earth. You know, it's or my pastime. You walk into someone's house and the center of the home is the kitchen and they have all these like really nice knives. So you can really find out a lot about someone if you find their altar in their house. What I'm afraid of with David Foster Wallace is that his mind did win out in the end. Right. And became his master. So one of the things he says is that the mind is an excellent servant, but a terrible master. I, I think he's speaking about his struggle. He says that 
he's talking as if he is someone that hasn't found the sort of true freedom that he's encouraging young people to pursue. And I've been in the situation many, many times where I give great advice that I do not take myself, you know, and I think a lot of people fall into that category. So the height of wisdom is to take your own advice. <laughs> right. There you go. Yeah. I sometimes get into uh, YouTube holes where I'll watch all these vid- videos about theoretical physics or quantum mechanics and things like that. And I saw one last night, actually, uh, that the theory was essentially that consciousness is reality and consciousness exists because it is the universe. And so in that light, if you derive meaning with your own conscious, that's the world you can live in or the world. I don't know. That might be, that might be a stretch. Consciousness is one of the things that we have yet to figure out. Right. What is consciousness? Right. Yeah. I mean, if you want to argue for a God, I mean, consciousness, if Einstein says, you know, energy can't be created or destroyed, what the hell is consciousness? Where does that go? Hmm. Or are we all just like a sim- simulation? Maybe. What percentage would you put on us being a simulation? I, I would say it's pretty, I think it's higher than uh, than a lot of other things. Mm. Why? What would you put on it? 40, 60. Yeah. So I, that's probably the highest I've heard on, you know, f- from someone else. I mean, it usually comes off as kind of, you know, that kook mm-hmm. sort of comment. But a lot of it, when you look at like Nick Bostrom or someone like that, um, who creates these theories that, you know, there are three different scenarios and one, we're not interested as humans in creating simulations. Well, clearly that's not true. Or two, we go extinct before we're able to create simulations so good or so real that the people in them don't realize they're in a simulation so we're not extinct yet. Or three, we actually get to that point. Of those three options, if it's the third option, I, I think that his thought is that what's probably already happened. Mm. What's the likelihood that you're the alpha race of humans? I like having fun with this kind of stuff. I don't necessarily like buy into anything 100% like that, but I think it's interesting. I think it, it makes a lot of logical sense, especially when you kind of look at like double slit experiment experiments if you know so double slit experiment is what they talk about in quantum mechanics and by the way uh for all of you listeners that are much smarter than me i'm sure i'm botching this uh don't give brad too much grief on it but basically they would shoot photons of light and they would expect it to be a certain pattern what was expected would change based on observation And typically, that's what they'll find in quantum mechanics, um, that the observer changes the outcome, which is super weird, right? I mean, it would almost point to someone or something being like, hey, don't look at that. You know, it's just interesting to me, you know, and they can find computer code in, in, in the Big Bang. I mean, I think there's a video on YouTube with Neil deGrasse Tyson and another theoretical physicist that they were like, we found actual computer code and all of this. I'm like, that's weird, man. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, there are a few tests that can be done to determine whether we're in a simulation or not. According to someone I read, he said that you don't know where you came from and you can't go to the end of this thing. So <laughs> those are two glaring indicators, according to yeah. uh, the guy that I uh, this article that I was reading. So I want to go back to the sure. kind of freedom that David Foster Wallace was talking about. He says that it's precious. He said that important, the really important freedom is about attention and awareness and discipline and caring for other people. He thinks that that's when you have those things, that's being educated and that's understanding how to think. And he thinks the alternative is the default setting. It is the rat race. And so I would think that if I were to follow up his speech and wanted to compliment it or add my own thoughts based on my experience, I think that it's a wise move to try to get out of the rat race as fast as you can. <laughs> so you're sacrificing a lot of years in order to get there. Um, that's what I had to do. So you mentioned that I'm not living this life that he describes, but I can relate to it. I lived it for yeah, a little sure. while. Um, not in the context of having a family at the same time. Well, you, you know, and we're talking about these greater ideas about, you know, religion or God or existence or meaning. I think one of the benefits of having the freedom to think what you want is to realize or, well, let's just say you don't have a belief system, which is fine. That's really special, I think, maybe, because you only have this one shot. I mean, just like what we were talking about earlier, you have one shot at life. You know, there's no do-overs. So if you're really not living the life that you want, I think it's time to maybe take a step back and think about what do you want? I think that most people, I found this to be true. Now, I could be wrong. And I say that about a lot of things. I think most people hit what they aim for, but I think a lot of the time they're aiming for the wrong thing. Which is celebrity, which is money. Wealth. Right. I, right. I think, I think, you know, you look at like lottery winners. I mean, you get used to what you have in terms of money real quick. I don't think like if you won the Powerball, for instance, I think that would be a curse. I really do. People kind of laugh at me when I say that, but I think, okay, well, every material thing is in your reach now. Now what? You've got to figure out the stuff that you can already figure out right now without the money. Yeah, that's absolutely right. A lot of lottery winners go broke, and typically it's because those people have no idea how to manage money, and the people that don't know how to manage money are the type that would buy a lottery ticket in the first place. So there's a high bankruptcy rate among those folks. Well, yeah, there is. If any of your listeners ever win the lottery, rule number one of winning the lottery, don't tell anyone. <laughs> no one. Don't tell anyone that you won the lottery. You know, rule number two, look at rule number one. <laughs> yeah. Another thing, I know I keep going back to Oh, no, speech. please do. I, I love that speech. I found him to be judgmental in a way that we shouldn't walk through the world. So... People who have an inner monologue at all times tend to judge a lot. Yes. And, and why the reason I'm saying this is because in his speech, he described things as hideously fluorescently lit yeah. or 
a huge overlit store with confusing aisles or creepy. He was describing grocery bags and he called them creepy and flimsy. And I thought, man, if you go through the world thinking that sort of thing, you're going to end up in a bad place psychologically. And I've known people like this who are extremely judgmental and that's how they walk through the world. They, every little object they can exquisitely describe it. But I think that they're, they're rewiring their brain to find the negative. Someone once told me that people that are really hard on others are, are the hardest on themselves. I think it's a function of that. I think it's a function of being self-conscious. I, I, I'll get into those modes sometimes too, because for many years I worked alone or alone with one other person in the office and that self-criticism, you know, it, it creeps its way in for sure. And that's when I've also found that I've been the most critical of other people. So, so interesting. How do you break free from that? By doing very basic human stuff. Uh, for instance, recently, like I decided that I'm not going to work from home. I'm going to go be around other creative, like-minded people. So I got some co-working space and it's done wonders for my day-to-day. Someone once said to me as well that if you talked to other people the way you talk to yourself, you'd have no friends. Now, I think that's true for a lot of people. That's such an important point. If you just treated yourself with the same courtesy that you treat other people, you'd find yourself treating yourself a whole lot better. Right. I love that point that you just made. I know you've, you've shared publicly that you've struggled with depression. Is that correct? Um, I wouldn't say publicly as, as in the media, but yeah, I'm, I'm not a, ashamed to talk about it. So for, the, for as long as I can remember, I, I've sort of always carried this weight for no particular reason. I've actually had a really good childhood. No real quote-unquote problems to think of, but they're always kind of felt like I always felt slower than my friends. Mentally or physically? Physically. Physically. Almost like there was a weight on my forehead, if that makes sense. Why it probably that, doesn't. Why was that important? What do you mean? Well, where I went to school in Houston, being athletic meant nothing. Like you could still be popular and have no athletic ability whatsoever. Okay. They had kickers, which were the people who wore cowboy boots. They yeah. had sort of the intellectual types. They had the grunge type. They had the jocks, the cheerleaders, whatever. The small town where we grew up in, it wasn't like that. No. The popular people tended to be the athletes. Sure. So is that why it was something that weighed on you? <laughs> no. So here, here's I, – I think it's what I was getting to. Um, and I don't want to make any assumptions about you. But for anyone that's never had depression that is not – you know, people go through things and go through specific things that makes them upset and sad. And actually, that can actually turn into depression. Sure. But to try to explain uh, to someone that's never had depression, they almost, almost always, they feel like it's not real or they feel like there's a reason behind it. Personally, I've gone through many years of like counseling and therapy and all the different drugs to try to get away from that. And, and really, it always sort of stayed with me. Um, but you're trying to explain it to someone and it's a weird thing because I really, I'm, I'm one of the people I really do believe it's a disease. 
because you can see it in my family as well. And you can see it generationally. It's kind of the same deal. But if you try to tell someone, oh, I have this cold. Let's just say I'm saying cold instead of depression. No one would be like, oh, he doesn't have that cold. He's not sick. He's, he's, he's choosing to have that cold. So it's kind of weird, you know, when people think uh, that it is a choice. To some degree, I think, I, no, uh, let me back up. I do not think it's a choice, but at some point, you're the only one that's going to have to work on it because no one else really can help you. And it's a lot of work. So I have a few questions, but sure. before, before I ask my questions, I'll preface my questions with this. I am an ignoramus when it comes to depression. I haven't studied it, nor have I known many people that have struggled with it. I had a buddy who committed suicide several years ago. I'm not even sure he had it. It was never talked about. Well, the thing about people with depression, I don't mean to interrupt before you get to your question, but, you know, a lot of a lot of times people will hide it because they don't want to drag you down with them. I, I, find, I find that, you know, people that suffer from depression are the kindest, most empathetic people you'll meet. And sometimes happy, they just don't want to bring you down into that abyss. Not that they could. You say that there's some of the more kind people. Do you think that those who struggle with depression get joy from being kind? Sure. I've always feared that some people don't get the same sens sensations by being kind that maybe you or I would get. And so it, it keeps them very selfish, even well into adulthood. I still see it today. There's somebody that I've known from a young age who was very selfish as a kid, still very selfish, just not other directed at all. He's the kind of person who would even though you're following him in your car and he's driving in front of you, he would go through the yellow light every time. Just doesn't have the wherewithal to, to think about the other person. It, it's really... Is this person happy, do you think? No. Oh, no. And okay. They, well, then, they maybe. harbor a lot of jealousy and resentment. Yeah. And he thinks that other people are selfish in the same way that he is. Where do you think that comes from? I don't know where it comes from, but it's innate. You don't think it's nurture? I I, I would doubt. Well, I don't know. Maybe we're intrinsically selfish. I, I mean, that could be a whole other three-hour discussion. Maybe we are. At what age did you realize something wasn't right? About just everything? Or, or Oh, uh, depression, sorry. It's hard to remember childhood. I, I can remember... I know that I can look at some old photos and it's evident. I'm just not smiling or, or whatever. It, pretty early on. Were you an angry kid? No. no. Wasn't angry. Sad. A lot of times people think it's a choice. And all I can say is like, I ha all I can do is show you my work or the years of therapy or the uh, most recently I went through a process called TMS, which is, it's called trans magnetic wait transcranial magnetic stimulation and basically for an hour every day for 45 days i had to sit in this chair while this like 
magnet was put on top of it. I know it sounds crazy. It is actually um, an FDA-approved method, but it takes months of insurance paperwork to get approved. The treatment costs around $60,000, I believe. Um, it takes an hour out of your day every single day while you basically have like a woodpecker tapping at your head. I mean, it's not painful. Um, that was actually the first thing where I felt like some relief. It was super interesting because, you know, because like I'm like, oh, this is what people feel like. Like I got this high, and especially the first few days. I'm like, people feel like this all the time. I'm, this is amazing because I'm used to being me. You know, like I'm not, I'm fine with, with who I am. I know that I could tend to go towards the negative a lot of times, but like it, it was an amazing thing. Depression is still with me, um, but TMS really, really did a number. I, w- I would recommend it to almost anyone who feels like they're not getting any results from medication. Um, there are no side effects, non-invasive and pretty much anyone can do it if you if you seek out the right places. How does someone know if they're depressed? There's a scale. I think it's on the number of 127. I don't remember the name of it uh, right off the top of my head. But I can tell you this. When I, when I went into the psychologist's office or the psychiatrist, every day they would give me this survey for depression. And day one TMS, I was at 24 out of 27, which is very high. Very high on the level, like probably in the danger zone. I'll oh. just I, I'll just leave it at that. Now I didn't obviously I didn't remember what my scores were every day, but I just took this and then they said, "Well, look at this," and I ended it at a four, which was drastic. You know, ended it over several months or over forty five days. My score of like let's say twenty seven is the highest. I started at twenty four. And I ended at a four mm. on the depression scale, which is, I mean, that's no antidepressants will give you that. At what point should someone visit a doctor? As soon as they know they have a problem. I mean, I can't, I can't really speak for anyone else. I think it's interesting you that, that you'd ask. I, I think if someone's depressed, they know it immediately. I don't think there's, how do you know if you're depressed? I don't think, I don't think many people are thinking, am I depressed? Nah, not to. Pr- I think I think it's pretty, pretty obvious does to themselves. You, does it bother you that people throw around the word so loosely? Same as anxiety. Oh my God, I've got so much anxiety. Or this was super depressing. No, I don't. I I think that whatever is real for you is real. I and I, I believe that if my daughter is losing her mind because of a lost toy, that's her world. Do you know what I mean? So if, if someone is stressed out or anxious or it's not, you know, the depression, I mean, I don't care if someone has the, I hope they don't have the level of depression that I had. Um, I certainly, you know, I, th- I think it, it's a very individualized thing. Were there any habits that you tried to incorporate into your life to rid yourself of your depression, such as? A daily gratitude practice or strenuous exercise. Being around people is kind of the biggest thing for me. Uh, I found myself, so when I got out of college, I was a sales manager for a hotel chain and I was around people all the time. And 
when I started my own company for many years, I was, I was by myself and I went from being an extrovert, someone that was very energized by other people to being completely introverted. And I realized that, that, that introversion was like letting the depression, the negative self-talk kind of run the show. I hate to say that, that it ran the show, but it definitely didn't help. I don't know. I don't think there are any clear answers with that kind of thing. You had become a slave to your mind. Sure. And isn't that easy? I mean, it's what you, I mean, it's consciousness. It's your, you, I mean, let's pretend it's a video game. You're, you are the only character in your first person shooter. Everyone else is other people. So like, yeah, it's easy to think that whatever you see or hear or do or think or, experience is is the world because in many ways it is but you can also change that so are you at a point now where you can wrestle with a thought and say this thought doesn't serve me and gently sure. push it away sure how did you get to that point there's a, a sort of practice or therapy um, called cognitive behavioral therapy look at any thought or negative thought that you have and try to take it out of the situation and be like, is this really what happens? You know, and try to think about, okay, well, what's the worst that would happen? And really it makes it not so bad or you can put a positive spin on it. Very helpful for anxiety. It takes a lot of practice, a lot. And it's a lot like the uh, David Foster Wallace speech. it's, It's trying not to be on the default setting. Which if you, you know, if you're depressed, it's certainly not a great default setting to be on. On a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the most jealous, how jealous of a person are you, would you say? That, do you ask this all the time? Maybe I never listened to the end. That's so weird. Uh, Jealous. Now, let me really think about it. Just give me a second. In terms of what? You see someone you went to school with traveling around the world, <laughs> and that's what you wanted to do, no. or the lead singer of a band, and you're like, man, I was just as good of a musician as him, and nah. you see cr- adoring crowds. So, here's the thing. I think uh, that's a good, I mean, I've always wanted to be a musician, so let's just use that as an example. I think that whatever you do, you really have to be in love with the process. And what do I mean by that? You know, I could look back and say like, oh, well, I'm not a musician or like I'm not living the life I want, which is not true. But it took me a while to figure out, well, I didn't really like the endless hours of practice or like lugging guitar amps upstairs to play in dive bars for no money and to, you know, be constantly criticized. Or if you're at a job, I, I, my first job out of college, I was an insurance adjuster. And God bless you to all the insurance adjusters out there because that's a, that's a hard job, man. But like I would look at it and be like, okay, well, if I get to the next level, then I'll be fine because I'll be making more money. But I hated the process. And, and I think that's where a lot, of, a lot of people mess up. I think if you hate the process, I promise you there's not, you know, there's not gold at the end of that rainbow, man. It's more of the same, probably even harder. 
So find something where you love the process, and I think I think you can you can be pretty happy. Uh, to answer your question, uh, am I a jealous person? No, I I I wouldn't trade my life for anything else. Do you have an internal monologue running at all times? Who doesn't? Don't you? No. No, come on. You're not just experiencing things without any. That, that's fascinating to me. If that's true, that's that's super fascinating. I mean. There's a video that went viral recently. Several of my Facebook friends posted it. It was someone who was fascinated because they thought that everybody had an internal monologue. And so they interviewed a girl who did not have an internal monologue. And I don't know what the percentages are, but I'm in that small percentage of people who do not have an internal monologue. That's interesting. I can not only choose. I can foster thoughts based on a certain subject and I can choose to think about something for 20 minutes or I can walk with the purpose of coming up with questions for a podcast with Nick. Okay. Um, my mind, if I don't choose, if I can choose for my mind to be completely silent, absent. Anything. Without having to practice that. That's just fascinating to me. I think it's super interesting because I, I'm that girl like I thought everyone does. I do practice it. Yeah. But I can go long periods of time without practicing because I usually feel as though I don't need it. I, uh -huh. I feel like I go through life in a meditative state that uh -huh. is aware I, Can I take the uh, jealousy answer? I'll, I'll put it back up to two. I, yeah, I'm jealous of that. I can often choose the emotion required to create the most re desirable outcome. And obviously, I'm not perfect by any means. But I would say 80% of the time, I can manufacture the emotion that's needed. Right. Whether it be anger or happiness or joy, all of that stuff. That, that would get me on a 1 to 10 scale to about an 8. But I don't get higher than a 9. Receiving praise or criticism would be a good example. I coach people to weigh criticism or praise based on the amount of respect or admiration that they have for that person. It's a very analytical way of walking through the world. But if somebody walked in here and criticized the way that I'm handling this podcast, I immediately would think something like, well, would I hire this person? And if not, then their praise or criticism weighs on me at about a one or nothing. Sure. Versus if the CEO of this hotel walked in and I knew his reputation and he criticized me, well, it weighs more. And so that's how I think about things like mm -hmm. that. Back to Mr. Rogers, good old Mr. Rogers. You know, he would often say you have the power to choose to stop or you have the power to put away your anger or or whatnot. Another Aver Brothers quote, ain't no man. Basically, ain't nobody can tell me how I'm going to feel, mm. you know. I also have a strong sense of what I can and can't control. And I don't know how much of that is natural versus how much going through a tough time as a kid engendered that in me. But it's it saves a whole lot of time when I realize, well, I can't do anything about that. Right. And move on. Yeah. 
I also have these little quotes that I live by, like rejection is God's protection. And so it's easy for me to either win or learn. That's all things that I started learning very, very early, but it, it makes, it makes you a weirdo because no. so many people Every, everyone's weird cannot relate to you them. know we were talking about social media earlier i think everyone's weird i think it's it's a situation where we're all in right now where you're talking about you know younger people being self-centered and, and their whole lives are on social media but what they're doing and all of us are guilty of it to a certain degree is that you're looking at other people's pictures or lives and you're judging yourself or your own life based on someone else's fake reality, which is super weird and super destructive. I mean, I don't know anyone that has a realistic representation of their life on Facebook or on Instagram. But you'll look at it and think, well, theirs is authentic. So I'm going to do this. Mine's fake. So I feel less good about myself. But even though. That's that's a story. It's fiction. It's weird. I mean, it's just it's destructive. I think, you know, Facebook or, or social media, man, I think we've gotten ourselves into a situation with it. I really do. I, I think it's I think it's divided us as a country. Um, it's made us do, you know, it's made us only worry about what other people think, which is so unhealthy, you know. It's almost as if it should be part of the school curriculum going forward. And what scares me is like I have a kindergartner and the sorry, Miss Pulley, if you end up hearing this, I uh, love you. You're doing a phenomenal job. But the principal and the teacher and the assistant teacher are posting pictures on Instagram a lot, like a lot of them, like 20 a day that that. Sorry, let me back up. That's probably an exaggeration because I don't look at it enough. But there's something every day on Instagram. I'm like, well, are we teaching these kids that this is like what we're supposed to be doing, documenting like every every little thing? I mean, I've, you know, I, I think there can be a balance of having pictures and experiences and memories. But when we make it the activity that we're after, it's weird. I don't know. How old is the teacher? Uh, she's probably 28, if I were the guess. I want to go back to the depression discussion because when I asked you at to assess yourself on a 1 to 10 scale of how jealous of a person you are, yeah, you, you were taken aback and said, do you ask everybody on the podcast yeah. this question? You don't see that as being a reasonable question in the context of having depression? Because no. that would educate no. me too. No, I mean, I, I I think maybe the disconnect is that you think maybe that the depression comes from something external or some experience or something I want or need. And what I'm trying to say is that it's really an Im just a chemical imbalance. Like when I had the TMS treatment and like like that for no good reason I felt great I, I think truly like it, it that to me that that experience made me feel wow okay I'm not wrong about like something's just off you know what I mean so 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 to say like I'm jealous or like I make you I think it's sort of still that thing it's like it 
really just being there for no reason, which is weird. And it's it's hard because we as humans, we have to have a reason behind many things. So. So in the context of the social media discussion and people. Yeah. Seeing people's fake lives online. Oh, I think it can foster many things. I don't think I, you know, when I'm when I'm talking about with like my personal experience with depression, I don't think that you know, jealousy or social media or getting down yourself because of someone else. I think it's sort of a, sort of a separate thing, mm. if that makes sense, because I, I think that sort of thing can take a norm, normally healthy person and make, make them unhealthy. Mm. Could be wrong. But not to the point of depression. Well, maybe. I'm not an expert on depression. I, I think that there are certain circumstances, which is why there's like therapy and things like that where people go, you know, You'll go through your life to try to figure out why this, why that. Um, but sometimes it's just, just a crossed wire, maybe. So, but it can come from external sure. sources. Okay. Disclaimer, Nick Luft is not uh, an expert on depression. <laughs> Do you have a favorite book? I'm a big fan of um, Outliers. I think it's great. Cash by Johnny Cash is kind of kind of a good one for me. I also really like The Dirt, Molly Cruz biography. Let's talk about investing and the company that you are heading up right now called Idle. Sure. What is Idle? So a while back, I was closing down the business and I needed a generator. And I thought to myself, well, I'll go rent one from Home Depot. And I couldn't find one there. So I need to rent one uh, from Lowe's and they didn't have any because of the hurricanes going on the East Coast. And the thought occurred to me, well, there should be like an Airbnb for your stuff. Well, certainly that exists, but it didn't. A long story short is that Idle is a peer-to-peer platform where you can rent out your Idle goods or you can rent stuff that you need you know, around the house, think tools, think party supplies, just about anything you can think of. So that that's idle. Uh, that it's been about a year and a half coming, but we launched back in October, and um, things are really starting to take off for us. We really we have the aim to make it the way people think of Uber instead of a taxi. We'd love for people to think of idle before the traditional party rental outlet. It's a big task. I'll say. And the concept is that you have idle stuff sitting around your house, for example, and you might as well be generating some income from that idle stuff. Sure. So what are the top things that are rented? Lots of tools. Uh, I've had my pressure washer rented half a dozen times in the last month. So uh, just the big ticket items that you just don't want to buy or if, uh, you know, if they're going to take up space in the garage. And I, I, I definitely have like a a sort of environmentalist uh, side to me. And I feel like I, I think we need to use less or we need to, you know, consume less just generally. So sharing or a sharing economy to me, I think it's good for the planet. I think it's good for everyone. I, I would imagine that with you traveling as much as you do. And I also listened to one of your podcasts where you're talking about, you don't really need much, you know, how freeing is that? to have less. Yeah, I've downloaded the app 
and I haven't used it yet because we're always moving. We don't have a home right now. So uh, I would love to use it. I love the concept. I even invested a little bit of money in it. So um, I believe in it. How popular has it become lately? I think right now we are number 74 in our category across the Android marketplace. I want to say by today, we'll probably have around 60,000 users, which we went up from 400, 450 in uh, October. So we're getting there. It's a slog to get up that hill because really what we need is for people to download it and see all of these things right around them. And that's a little bit of a challenge, but we're, you know, we're making some headway in that aspect. So couldn't be more excited about how it's going. I have a partner, uh, his name is John Harris. He, you know, he has been a mentor to me and he's one of those guys like, you know, if you're ever going to start a business, and this is just a side note, find the, surround yourself with people who believe in you because you're going to be faced with a thousand people that say why or why would you do that or surround yourself with people that look at things through the lens of possibility. That's, that's the way I like to see it. Even if it's not the best idea or it's a crazy idea. Well, the people that kind of tilt their head and say, well, what if, what if this happened? Or what if you did it that way? Those are the people that, that I've been fortunate enough um, to help me out with this. And you're doing this full time, correct? Oh, yeah. What advice do you have for someone who might be sitting in a cubicle every day wondering if they should pull the trigger on an idea that they have for a startup? Uh, two pieces of advice. My first would be to do something. doesn't really matter what, but uh, I, I can't tell you how many people that I've talked to, they're like, well, I had the same idea. And I've look over my lifetime, I've had many, many ideas. And I think that most people, and not, not to judge because I've been there too, you know, you overthink it and you think it and you think it and you think it, and you really, really don't take any action. So I, w- I would say just take any step, almost like when you're applying for a job you're, or, or you're trying to change careers, you're thinking about well, what should I do? What do I like? And you're, you're just wasting time. I think do something. You never know where that something might lead you. And that, that was absolutely the case for me. And which leads me to my number two piece of advice is ask for help. Um, when I had this idea of, of, you know, well, I want to build this app company. Well, I don't know how to build an app company, uh, but I believe in the idea. Well, let me figure out if I could find someone who does. And, and you know, that's what I did. And, you know, people generally, they, they want to help you. I agree with everything you just said there. And, yeah, we're probably all suffering a little bit from imposter syndrome. Yeah, sure. Fake it till you become it, actually, is a good uh, is a good saying. Not fake it till you make it, but fake it till you become it. Let's talk about politics for a minute. All right. You're a strong progressive. Yes, I think that's fair. So the vast majority of my guests lean conservative. Uh-huh. Do you have any thoughts on where the divide in our country started? I, I would really recommend a website, uh, the Wall Street Journal created it i'm not sure if you've heard of it. it's called red feed blue feed based on the all you know algorithms that facebook has and what you like and what you reply to and how you respond to something and what your demographic is they're going to show you 
this very filtered view of the world. And then almost always it's going to be the view of the world that you already agree with. If we look at the next 10 years, the most dangerous thing is confirmation bias. I mean, you can find someone that agrees with you all day long. You can probably find groups of people or thousands or hundreds of thousands of people that already agree with whatever idea you came up with it in your brain, no matter how awful or evil or good. So you just, it's this big echo chamber of what you already believe. So red feed, blue feed, it'll show you like, okay, well, if you're hardcore left wing, you get this certain news feed and it gives you the side by side article of the right, what the right wing people will, will receive. It's super interesting. I love that idea. I've not It's so good. And the truth is, or at least in my experience, is that the, the, the truth is somewhere in the middle. And that's probably true across all media. It, it's real hard to talk about or debate politics. And, and in my personal experience, it's so divided that, like, if I say I'm liberal, anything I automatically say in some some people's view is fake news do we already talk about how or my theory about the more places you move or the more places you go the more left-leaning you become it seems like you're the exception for that did we talk about it uh earlier i'm not sure not on the microphones but you did tell me that you're surprised that i'm not maybe more left because i have traveled so much or, or that was the implication anyway any thoughts on that or, or, or people that you've come across? Do you think that that's generally true or n- not really? Man, I could talk for hours about how my view of America has changed. Sure. One of them is to realize that America doesn't have poverty. We have relative poverty and it takes going to an orphanage in Central Africa sometimes uh-huh. to realize it or even places like Indonesia or Thailand or just poorer parts of the world and interacting with people there who are happy right. to realize, whoa, Americans do not realize how good they have it. Even if you go to England, if you go to a small town and spend a week in England, you realize that our standard of living is so incredibly high and it's right. the envy of, of most of the world. So that is something that has changed. Um, so my views on politics Many of them were reinforced by my travels because I've always believed that the goal of material wealth is not noble. The goal of of everybody having equal material wealth is not a noble goal. And I, I think that in our country, it's held up as a value to attain this material equality. And I don't see that as desirable at all because I've been to places where... You don't need much. And us traveling and living out of suitcases, we realize that we don't need much to be happy. I would agree with you. I, I don't think I don't think anyone, people that lean towards socialism or what what some people like to call socialism, I don't think anyone is, is suggesting uh, economic equality. Or at least I certainly wouldn't. It's more about – take Bernie Sanders, for instance. People love to hate Bernie Sanders – He'll say things like, well, college should be free. Thing is, when our parents were growing up, college was free. State colleges were free. It's, it's just interesting how p- 
polarized we've gotten all of a sudden. Universal health care, man. Like I think and this is just me. I think that the job of a government is to take care of its citizens to some degree. We already have universal health care for people over 65. But they don't I, I don't know. I feel like some people have a hard time seeing it that way. It's lowering the limit on what we already have. It's not this big demon to me to to take care of your citizens. I don't know. I don't think the environment should be a political issue. And, and there are no easy answers to any of this, I, I think. you know. But it's good that we can talk about it. It is, but it's pretty rare yeah. that you and I are, you know, we're kind of like, kind of get each other, I think. Well, I think that when you understand both sides of the argument, there's less emotion. Right. And I'm afraid that people don't seek websites or news sources that present a good example that would support the other side. But you you did that as soon as we sat down. I have always tried to seek information on both sides and was surprised how many people didn't do that. And it was, of course, exacerbated with social media because you're just fed what you already believe. And, and it makes you feel good to see what you already believe by experts. Put it out there. Yeah. And I can't believe how many people trust their feelings, though. All I mean, right. How many people feel something and doubt that feeling? I mean, how many people have a thought that they don't believe. You know what I'm talking about? To explain that last... Well, I'll, I'll comment on the trust your gut thing. Uh, if you've read Malcolm Gladwell's recent, most recent book, you, basically your gut is wrong 100% of the time. Like You are shaped by your experiences and your gut is generally wrong. You'll never see an objective view of almost any conflict you're in. Well, your experiences comprise your gut, do they not? Yes, I guess so, but it but it doesn't give you a fair assessment of what is actually going on. He gives several examples, and we can talk about Malcolm Gladwell all day. Um, but what was the last thing that you said right before we were talking about sources of information? Oh, people that have a have a thought but don't believe that thought. Mm -hmm. What do you mean? Well, I just think there are people in the world who have thoughts that they can't keep inside, and those are people who talk <laughs> constantly, right? And there are also people who have thoughts that if they feel it's right, they would never attempt to disconfirm it because they feel it's right. Right. And so we see a lot of conflation of thought and feeling. We see it all the time. Yeah. And we all feel, at least I hope we do, but we must find out what are the consequences of an action it has to be considered otherwise we would always do what feels good so when people get into a political argument and they say that they don't understand the other side they're not trying because you can understand it as long as you understand that some people feel very strongly and they don't differentiate between thought and feeling It's conflated. I agree with you to a certain degree. You even hear it when they speak. They'll say, well, I just feel like, and what they're explaining is how they feel about something. Agreed. But, but, with their thought. but to be fair, some people do just speak like that because they are that way. 
Uh, they'll they'll talk like that about everything. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm actually one I'm one of those people. So I'll, I'll be honest with you there. Like I, when I have an argument with my wife, I mean, I'm, I'll say things like, "I feel like you're not listening," or yada yada yada. I think that's not inherently bad. I almost always begin with, "But you could probably change my mind." You did say that today. That was impressive. You don't hear that a lot. Well, but I would love to hear that more, you know, and and I don't think I would want to really try to change anyone's mind, but I'm certainly open to different perspectives. Look, I can see about as far as the horizon over there. I don't know anything else beyond my field of view. I certainly could be wrong about everything. But if I'm saying that, I think maybe you could be, too. I don't know. I don't really know. I'm interested in exploring, though. Likewise, I think knowing what you don't know is the first step to wisdom and and acknowledging that you don't know everything. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people in this world who do think they know it all. (laughs) Yes. Let me ask you some fun, quick questions and then we get out of here. How's that sound? Oh, boy. Sure. Yeah, sounds great. Have you ever paid for an app? Yes, easily. What's what's the app that you've bought that you most enjoy? A DAC audio recorder to record concerts. How do you spell that? Uh, it's Digital Audio Codec, DAC. And your company, is the app free? Yes, of course. If you could go back in time and pull Nick aside that day at your graduation just for five minutes and give him some advice, what would you tell him? Oh, shut your damn mouth. I mean... Did you talk too much? I do talk quite a bit. I, I tend to, and I, I try to work on it. I'm aware that I interrupt people a lot. You know, if, if, if you had talked to me, let's say about music, and you say you like Nickelback or whatever. <laughs> Even still, punching bag. They are the fa- yeah, they are. All right, well let's get let's move on to the new Nickelback, the Lightning and the Thunder. Who's that? I would fucking tell you why they suck and they should. You know, you shouldn't listen Music to that shit. Knob. I absolutely, and I've always I, I've always had a degree of that. These days, I just I just don't really care. You know, whatever floats your boat. And I, I feel like it's a better way to go. I, I was, I would definitely say, just calm down. Like, and and by the way, your opinions and tastes are going to change drastically. So watch out. And I have to tell myself that now that I could be completely on the other end of the spectrum in ten years. When I was college aged, I had a lot of friends that were music snobs, and they would only listen to things that were esoteric that could only be found downloading on Napster, if those songs ever made it to mainstream, they would discard it the same way they do with bars and restaurants in Houston. A new sure. one pops up, they want to go to it, and then it becomes popular, and they don't want to go anymore. I'm a huge music lover, and when you find uh, something that that is small and special, it feels like it's yours, so it's hard to give it away to people that you don't, you know, they may not understand it as well or whatever. I mean, you should be happy for the artist or whatever that they're getting some exposure and uh, give you a good example. If you, if anyone ever gets the chance to see Langhorn Slim, go see him. The man is the most electric performer I've ever witnessed, and I've, I've seen Bruce Springsteen play a four-hour show nonstop at 71. That was kind of cool. He would stage dive, and he, like, ch- chugs someone's beer. It's like, that's pretty dangerous if you're Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> Just be chugging beer, but, but it was cool. But Langhorn Slim, man, yeah, he is amazing, and no one knows who he is. Um, but I don't think, you know, that's not going to last forever. 
wanted the whale, but she just walked over and gave her hers. And like that, I, that to me just tears me up, man. Mm. I mean, you, sometimes you don't even know where it comes from. Uh, Do you think people are inherently good? It's a tough question. Um, and then it's an age old question that I'm not sure that we'll ever answer. I think that back on Mr. Rogers, he would always say, like you look at something like the, just for example, the Boston Marathon bombing, uh, some horrific shit goes down, but then the people that he always says, look for the helpers, the people that are helping far outnumber, you know, the bad guys, um, and we could go on all day about like, well, why do people help people? Because it feels good and it's selfish. And that's, you know what? Fine. I don't care why. You know, if you're helping someone else, I don't care if you're being selfish about it because it makes you feel good. It should make you feel good. Mm. And that may be why that you should do it. Well, let's hope it makes you feel good because I made the comment earlier. I don't think everybody gets joy from helping people. Certainly not. Let's take a one to ten scale. I I have a friend who if... I volunteer somewhere for an afternoon on a zero to 10 scale. It makes me feel like a nine. Okay. If he did that same volunteering, it would make him feel not a lot different from his usual disposition. So let's say it would make him feel like a five or a six. Mm -hmm. And therefore I'm more likely to volunteer more time. I find, I find that fascinating. We always tend to assume that everyone feels the same sensations in their bodies that we do mm -hmm. when we give, when we volunteer, when we're generous in any way. But if you didn't get the same sensations, you probably wouldn't be as generous. And I tend to think that that is innate. So what's your answer to that question? Good or bad? I just think it needs to be talked about. Sure. Realized. I, I just well, I, I never heard that discussion had anywhere, and it's just something that I've observed through years of studying humans and, and how right. we behave. I mean, to me, well, I don't have a definite answer on good or bad, but I can, I can, I can confidently say that I believe it's uh, definitely nurture versus nature. Um, that you know, you you look at life situations that people are born into and then turn into monsters. I don't I don't think that it would be a stretch to say that, you know, you or I, if if in that situation since birth would be any different. I, I'm not sure. Um, Even if you were walking into the casino and you held the door open for the person behind you. Sure. That small exchange of thanks, man. Yeah. No problem. That feels a little bit good. Sure. Not everybody feels that. And if you're not likely to feel it, you're not likely to provide that courtesy for someone. Fair enough. Yeah. I, I just think that's something that people don't talk about. Hmm. It probably should be talked about. I think maybe a hundred years from now, we'll look back and realize just how much we didn't know about our bodies and, and mm -hmm. how much is nature versus nurture. Yeah. I mean, but you think about it. Sometimes I think about the, the, just the craziness of situations that we get put in. Like, let's say this was a, instead of a window, let's say it was a balcony. Now, you and I have not seen each other for, what, 20, 25 years. And we don't really know a whole lot about each other, or we didn't before we started this conversation. We just generally just trust strangers to not push us over the balcony. <laughs> and it, for the most part, kind of works. You know, it's interesting. 
it's i mean maybe you could say the deterrent is the law and stuff like that but there was a time where you would have never gotten caught right but it just didn't happen all the time it's so i don't know it is it is a rabbit hole that we could probably go down all night but yeah have you noticed there aren't many serial killers anymore it's right. too easy to get caught there's cameras everywhere yeah I, I, you know, you talk about like privacy and stuff like that. I was like, man, it's easy to get caught because people, I mean, including myself, I was like, I sent my DNA to the internet to do my <laughs> family tree, man. That was dumb. That was some dumb shit. I did it like right when they first started doing that. I was like, man, that was a poor life decision, but now it's there. So, and from what I'm, from what I understand, TikTok is a Chinese company. Yeah, people. Provide everything to the Chinese yeah. government yeah. also. Yeah. Yep. If someone dropped a million dollars in your lap tomorrow, what would you do with it? I would I would invest it all in idol. I'd like to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, last question. Well, two more questions. What sure. are you most grateful for? I am most grateful for my daughter. One hundred percent. Yeah. If, and she was also she was something that I never knew that I needed. But, you know, over over time, she's the best part of my day. Easy. Hands down. How long have you gone without her? The longest I've ever been away was maybe three or four days. How hard was that? Um, it was okay because it was the last week when we were, my wife and I were on vacation. I mean, it, it, it was tough, but, um, you know, with FaceTime and all of that, it's pretty, pretty simple, yeah. you know? Cool. How can people connect with you online, Nick? Uh, they can email me, nick at getidle.com. Um, please feel free to go to getidle, G-E-T-I-D-L-E.com and download the app. I uh, would love to hear your feedback, thoughts, comments, and uh, please go out and use it. We really appreciate your support. Excellent. Nick, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. This has it. been fun. Friends, thank you for joining us. It means so much to me. I don't take it lightly. So lots of gratitude. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, text the link to a friend, share the love. It'll give you something to talk about with Ace next time you see him. <laughs> if you wish to follow my adventures on Instagram and Twitter, I am at man underscore overseas. Thank you, folks. 